You are entering the Freedom Hut. Massive protests in France that look to put some uh, difficulties into enacting the green agenda of President Macron. What does this tell us about big government and environmentalist wackos here at home and the rise of socialists among the Democrats? We'll talk about that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One more Make Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Hundreds of thousands of protesters, weeks now of this in in France. And you might be saying, well, Buck, what does France have to teach us about anything? Well, let me tell you a few things. One, France, as you know, is more of a uh, democratic socialist country than we are, though not that much more. Two, the French, the Europeans in general, but also the, the French in particular, are very into their social welfare state and their benefits and their government interventions and then also the uh, green movement. Remember, it is the Paris Climate Accords that President Obama was so very, very proud of. It was the, the French and the Europeans who were said to be leading the way on the environment. Well, it's a very important lesson as these protesters are battling it out with French police on the streets of major cities across that whole country. And the lesson is summarized as follows. When people who are having a hard enough time paying their bills are told that they're going to have to pay even more for gas and, yes, other goods that are made with or transported with gas, uh, with oil, because of the need to fight climate change, those people tend to get pretty annoyed. And that's what's happening right now in France. The way the media is reporting on this is just classic. Instead of making it clear to your casual observer that this is really a reaction to the ineffectual bureaucratism of Emmanuel Macron, who was the centrist left favorite candidate of the elites and of the establishment in the most recent election, Uh, This is somebody who is supposed to be a uh, political tactician, supposed to understand markets, supposed to know how to engage in good governance. This is what the statists always say they want. They want someone who is calm, cool, and collected, has the right views, and understands systems and bureaucracies well enough to implement them. It's really the, the progressive dream in this country. I mean, Macron is kind of like Beto, except... Macron's actually had to earn a living, from what I understand. Beto just got to marry a billionaire. That's a fun job. 
I'm like, I should I should try that job. The I'm going to marry a billionaire routine. Uh, nonetheless, you have these yellow jackets. No relation to the bees. It is because they are in fact wearing these high visibility jackets as a symbol of their of their protests in France, and they're running around and they're very upset. And they're upset because Macron, in his infinite wisdom, sarcasm has raised the price of gas. Producer Mike, what is it now you said right before we came on? $7? $7 a gallon. Right now in the U.S., there are a number of states with gas stations, with at least one gas station. I heard this today on Fox Business. Where I think you're at under $2, under $2 a gallon. You're paying $7 a gallon for gas in France. And they just added a 30 cent per gallon Climate change fighting tax. And then there's a fight, as this always happens, right? They they take the money and just parallel all the things I'm talking about. The, de- the, the Democrats in this country are basically the French political establishment in their own country, right? The Democrats here mirror image everything that the French political establishment wants, that the European elites want. In fact, Democrats in this country often point to countries like France, but more so to Denmark and Sweden with their massive social welfare state, their tremendous government intervention in the market, and say, see, we could do it like them. And this is always the response to, look at Venezuela, it's a socialist hellscape now. They say, well, look at Denmark. And I say, okay, well, let's let's look at these places. Let's look at what's going on in France. And sure enough, on the issue of, of climate change, people who are having a hard time don't want to be told they have to pay more money in a way that's really going to affect them. It's really money out of their pocket because there's a need to fight climate change. I mean, this climate change thing really is some kind of a mental illness at this point. I mean, the fight climate change? How? Why? Well, because we're going to stop the temperature from raise, being raised one degree or two in 100 years? Does anybody really think the 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 different technologies we use today for energy are going to be the same in 20 years, in five years. Does anyone really think that there's a human being alive today who knows what a modern economy looks like, how it functions, what it's right? Think back, think back 70 years from where we are right now and then look 70 years in the future. I don't think anybody could have imagined if they were to go back to you know, 1950, that I'd be sitting here talking to you uh, while I have, you know, a, a computer. I have two computers, one on my desk, one in my hand, my phone, both of which are more powerful, either of which more powerful than all the computing power of the entire modern world. Right? I mean, you know, that's, we have changed so dramatically. I mean, this idea they can project in the future, this is why that climate change report that came out last week or the week before was just such nonsense. It's look at the most dire prediction possible, look 70 years out in the future, and and then tell us that we need to change our lives now. No, and the French have had enough. They're they're up in arms about this. And some of these protests got really nasty. I mean, now there's there's footage you can see it. I mean, there's tear gas and their protests are getting beat with batons. I mean, they're really going after the cops. Some woman was uh, an elderly woman was killed. She actually got hit by a tear gas canister in her home. Uh, but, you know, these protests are ugly and there's they're vandalizing the Arc de Triomphe, you know, up there with the Eiffel Towers, the most famous and visible symbols of all of France. I mean, 
This is really combustible stuff there. And do you know who's the most upset by this? I mean, do you know who's at the core of the so-called yellow jacket movement in France? People who don't make so little that they qualify for government assistance, but don't make enough that they can pay their bills. Kind of reminds you of the people that don't like Obamacare in this country, right? Not enough that you get free stuff or subsidies. You know, you, you, got, you got too much money for that, but not enough that you can comfortably pay your bills and be independent, even though you're working, even though you're producing, even though you're being a productive member of society. You know, the government can make things just too hard. The government is not always helpful. In fact, the government is generally unhelpful when it comes to you paying your bills. The government wants to take from you. It is not assisting you in paying your bills. And the French people know this. And, you know, this is the group also, I would note, that in a in a social Demo- socialist Democrat or Democrat socialist, all the same crap, state, the people that really suffer the most are those who are struggling but working. They're the ones who really suffer. And and you see this with and with the Ocasio-Cortez and the Bernie Sanders just mythology. I mean, they're either so bad at math that they can't be very smart or they're just kind of being cynical and really lying to all of us all the time. Because this idea that the numbers can work out. It's it's just flatly and simply not true. It is inaccurate to pretend that all you have to do is have the rich pay for the kinds of programs that people want in France to fight climate change, an issue that shouldn't even be under discussion. I mean, this is just nonsense. Fight climate change. You know that you know that they they, they push fighting climate change to justify the gas tax raise. And and the, the media in this country is saying, oh, that it's just because gas prices are going up. That's why they're riding. No, they're forcing. This is just like what Obama wanted to do, remember? You know, electricity prices will skyrocket. That's what Obama said. This is what they want to do. This is destructive to productivity. This is destructive to wealth. But they think they're so smart. They know better than you whether it's Macron or Obama or Sanders or you name it, that the pain that you have to suffer and the private property that the state is appropriating from you, stealing from you, the theft that's occurring under the guise of combating an imaginary foe, climate change that's going to melt the world, that upsets people, right? It upsets people when this happens. And the theory that the people that are making these decisions are so smart, so much better than all the rest of us, that they know better and that your suffering doesn't matter, your pain at the pump for your gas or just trying to pay your bills doesn't really matter because they've got something bigger and better in mind. That is the root fallacy from which all the rest of socialism's misery grows. That collectivist impulse. Okay, well, this is going to harm some people, but it's going to be better in the long run and we know better. So we're just going to do this thing. No. No, this, this, is, this is state intrusion into the market. This is the state involving itself in ways that is just damaging. There is no offsetting gain here. This is not, oh, we need taxes for a military. This is, some of us have this idea, 
and we want the people to fund it. And the elites don't really care about this because, you know, the, the, the real difference in society that you get from those who are working and those who are don't have to care about these democratic socialist policies are, you know, the people that a little more or a little less money doesn't really change their lifestyle. You know, their taxes go up a little bit, down a little bit, doesn't affect them. Versus people with taxes going up or down means they're going into debt or not. They can get that house payment down or not. They can send their kid maybe to school or not. I mean, it really matters. And so when you when you look at these protests in France, I mean, it's, it's I think, a, a warning of what is to come in this country because when people start to understand what the real costs of these very appealing slogans. Remember, remember Thomas Sowell. The great part about socialism is that it sounds good. The bad part about socialism is that it doesn't freaking work. And in France, you know, they 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 tend now they're tending toward bigger government, raising taxes, doing these things. And sure enough, you know, people, yeah, combating climate change sounds great until you actually have to pay some money and combat it. Then you realize it's all a big joke. And you don't want to do it anymore. So I understand the frustration of these uh, yellow jacket protesters. By the way, it's le- they're far left and far right, as I understand, that are represented in this. This is an uprising of everyday folks. This is an uprising of people, a, a political insurgency of people who recognize that the French state is messing up. They want Macron to stop, step down. They're sick of this ineptitude on display from the government. The government isn't giving them, is, is making promises that it can't follow through on. People's taxes keep going up. Their taxes keep going up. Their uh, quality of life is going down. Their expenses are going up all the time. You know, remember the current generation of youth activist types, you know, people in their 20s and their 30s, they're the ones who are just realizing, oh, the modern welfare state as we know it, those bills are really just coming due 10, 20, 30 years from now, and these states, to meet their obligations, are going to have a crushing tax burden on, on, the, on the youth. I hate to say it, but, you know, like the boomers in this country have kind of looted the national treasury, and the future generations, the ones that have to make up for the shortfall, that's just the truth. In the French and European states, they're realizing they've got the same problem. They don't have enough young people working. They don't have enough, enough people paying in. And you can raise taxes and raise taxes. They created this millionaire's tax. It was a disaster because the really rich people just leave. But we gotta, this is, there's, there's something going on here. There's something very troubling about this, this movement in France because it's also coming at a time. Just like how they point to the rise of nationalism in Europe and Trump and, you know, oh, gosh. There's a, a correlation between this discontent and the recognition that the social democrat state in Europe is crumbling and also doesn't give people a sense of purpose and isn't culturally vibrant enough to sustain itself over the long term, especially with large amounts of immigration coming from very disparate cultures. There's echoes of what's going on here in this country with the rise of socialist movements. All right, I've, I have to, I've, I've been passionate about this stuff. We'll get into more of this. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I just, I find that, uh, sorry, I apologize, by the way, guys, as you can tell, I'm, I'm coming down with a cold, so my voice is, uh, it's going to be a little, it's going to be a little sketchy during the show today. I'm trying to drink as much tea as, as I possibly can. But these, these socialists uh, in Europe versus these, these socialists here, 
they're going to have a very big problem to deal with, and that is they're creating this sense of impending utopia. But they're telling, they're not talking about how we're going to pay for this. And once, you know, once they, if they get into power as they have in Europe, as they have in France, if they get into power here, if in 2020 we have the rise of social de- socialist Democrats in America and in a more open fashion, um, we're going to see a lot of discontent, similar to what's happening on the streets of Paris and, and across France, because we don't have the money to pay for this. We've got a lot more show coming. Stay with me. Are you concerned about your current email service, your privacy and protection? Then iPatriots.us is for you. It's a new conservative alternative to liberal-based email. iPatriots.us email is secure and private. It's more of what you want without all of the liberal nonsense, ads, and spam. Your email files are safe because of its premium antivirus, anti-spam, 250-bit encryption iPatriots.us won't sell your information or support left-wing agenda items like most of those other email providers out there. With iPatriots, you get 30 gigs of cloud storage, larger attachment sizes, and much more. It works on any Windows or Mac computer and is compatible with most mobile devices. Go to iPatriots.us now, find the membership level that's right for you at checkout, and select your iPatriots email address. Enter promo code BUCK10 for 10% savings during your first whole year of membership. Again, iPatriots.us, promo code BUCK10 for 10% off. The government takes everything from us. They steal from us. We have to pay for everything. We are overtaxed. We hope that the protests will change things. The rising cost of fuel is going to trigger a civil war. And I, like most other citizens, we are all ready. We are fed up with paying so much all the time. It's become the new normal. But paying so much, it's just not possible anymore. That's right. A bunch of French people. Hundreds of thousands. By the way, the support for this, just so you know that I'm not... This isn't like uh, some little small group of radicals. The support for these yellow vest protests that they've been able to measure via polling in France is like 70 to 80 percent. So most of the country, a huge majority of the country, supports this. They're saying these guys are right. This is bullcrap what's going on. And you hear what these French people that interview are saying? They're taxing us too much. They're taking too much of our stuff. Remember, in this country... We started a revolution because the man was taking too much of our stuff. In fact, also the man had given a monopoly for the uh, East India Company with tea. But uh, the man was taking too much of our stuff, eating out our substance, I believe, from the Declaration of Independence is the verbiage used. People don't like it when the state is getting too greedy. And the state in France isn't just getting greedy, it's delusional. You're going to start taking people's money to fight climate change? This is like saying, hey, I've got an idea. Let's have a forced collection of citizens where we take money from them and then we make a big bonfire and light it on fire. Yeah, that sounds like a great idea. That's what they're doing in France under the guise of climate change. This movement has given rise to major demonstrations and also unacceptable violence. I have understanding for these fellow citizens, but I will not give anything to those who want destruction and disorder, because the Republic is both public order and the free expression of opinions. It's not quite as uh, not quite as catchy when the 
translator has to say. But that was uh, Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, who is saying, of course, you know, the violence is bad, but he has sympathy for the people, blah, blah, all the things you'd expect. Um, this is what's happening, is that the, the, in the modern, the modern social Democrat state is running into the issue of how do we pay for all this stuff? Uh, and, and how does unsustainable debt get handled? I mean, this is where you also have Ocasio-Cortez say, yeah, let's just spend $30 trillion. Why not make it $100 trillion? The people that are pushing these policies don't understand what these kinds of numbers would do to the overall economy. They, they, they just don't have enough of an understanding of how this would affect the private sector, the pressures this would put on investment, on hiring, on innovation, on, on productivity, on doing stuff that people want. I mean, the, the basis of commerce, you know, there can be a level at which it is just simply too much and, and we're quickly approaching that. Um, but there was a really interesting piece and it made me think of all this over the weekend uh, called The Tax the Rich Delusion of the Democratic Left by this guy Brian Riedel. Ever hear anyone on the left spell out exactly how they're going to pay for Medicare for all, free college, and the rest? Didn't think so. And, and he, just, he just crunches the numbers. And it's not really that hard an exercise to do. Uh, and remember, you've got people rioting on the streets of major French cities, uh, defacing the Arc de Triomphe and squaring off in pitched street battles with riot police. And it's because of a raise in the gas tax. Now, and you have widespread national support for the people that are doing this. I love how the media says raising gas prices. No, it's the government came along. It's exact. It's essentially a carbon tax. It's all it is. It's the French version of a carbon tax. It's oh, okay. We don't like CO two in the air, so we're going to tax it. You know, you tax more of it, you get less of it. That's the idea. It's a, it's a punitive tax in for, for the environment, and people are already struggling. And they're like, the environment? Really? You're just going to make everything more expensive? So we can all, what, have, you know, solar panels on our rooftops everywhere? Whenever I make jokes about solar, those of you with solar panels live in Arizona or something always write me, book, my solar panels are great. I'm sure they are. I'm just saying. But when you start to look at the numbers, here's, here's what uh, really comes into, uh, comes into stark relief right away. Here's what he writes, quote, let's begin with income taxes. Remember, this is to pay for all the stuff that the Social Democrats want in Europe. And in this case, this is to pay for the Ocasio-Cortez-Sanders war in wing of the Democrat Party. Free college, free health care. What else is free? There's something else that I'm missing. Um, no, those are the big ones. Free college, free health care, other free stuff, too. They'll figure that out in time. When you start to look at it, it gets scary, though. Here you go. Let's begin with income taxes, he writes. Imagine 100% tax rates on all income earned over the $1 million threshold. That's politically impossible, but for the sake of argument, imagine it. Even that would add just 5% of GDP and revenues until people quickly stop working at that income. Slightly more realistically, doubling the top tax to, uh, two tax brackets to 70 and 74% would raise at best... 1.6% of GDP. 
So you might say, okay, Buck, you raise 1.6% of GDP in taxes to deal with things. All right. So let's now look at what it would cost. Um, when you look at what it would cost, you find out that even if the 2017 and 2018 tax, and, uh, tax cuts and defense spending hikes expired, the CBO projects a baseline budget deficit running to 5% of GDP over the next decade. Uh, and that's when you start to get into the far left wish list that we're talking about here. $42 trillion Democratic agenda. So far, the left and Ocasio-Cortez have come up with $2 trillion in tax increase. And uh, why am I talking about Ocasio-Cortez? She's just saying what other Democrats want, but aren't willing to say yet. Right? You know, she also wants uh, free electricity. There you go. Free electricity. Yeah. That's going to be great. Universal jobs and housing as a human right are just a few more yep. things on our platform. Oh, dude, free. It's going to be free everything. Free everything. It's going to be amazing. And what do they want? $42 trillion of a democratic socialist agenda. Single payer health care, $32 trillion. A federal jobs guarantee, $6.8 trillion. Student loan forgiveness, $1.4 trillion. Free public college, $800 billion. Infrastructure, a trillion. How the heck do you pay for all that? Well, they say tax the rich. But as I explained before, even if, even if you took every single dollar earned over a million dollars, which would actually be a tax on the rich, usually what they do is say, we're going to tax rich people. And then all of a sudden you got people that are making 200 grand who are being taxed like they're rich. Well, you know, I got news for them. The average janitor in the New York, this is a true story, the average janitor in the New York City public school system with overtime makes $93,000 a year. So if you have a janitor, let's say, married to a school administrator with some seniority in the New York City public school system, that's a household income of, let's say, easily $150,000 to $160,000 a year, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. We'll call it one hundred fifty k. Are people making 150K living in a major city rich? I'm not saying they're not doing well. They are doing well. But are they rich? Should they be paying 60, 70, 80% of their income above you know, 50 grand in taxes or above 40 grand in taxes? Because here's where we're all, here's where this is all heading. This is where things are going to get really ugly. The numbers don't add up. The, the rich can't pay for this. I don't mean... Can't like it's not fair. I don't mean can't like politically it won't happen. I mean, they do not have the money to pay for this. It does not exist. You could confiscate every dollar that the rich earn over a million dollars a year and you would not be able to fund all of these proposals. Because you know what? There are a whole lot more people making 60 grand, 60 grand than there are people making 600 grand. Obviously, the real money is the middle class. That's where the real tax dollars can get got, if you will. That's where they can get the money. And we already have the most progressive tax code of any of the OECD countries. We already have um, trying to, you know, these are I'm trying to remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I don't want to give you the wrong ones. Uh, The top. 20% 20% of taxpayers earn 53% of income, but pay 69% of all federal taxes, including 88% of all income tax. So basically 20% of the country is paying 90% of the income taxes. 
The bottom 40% of earners earn 14% of the income while paying no income tax and less than 5% of all federal taxes. So we already have a very progressive tax code. So see, this is where this whole movement, and this is big, this is, this is going to be a, a, at the center of the fight for 2020. And you're seeing it play out in a, in a different context, and they've got their own political ecosystem. But in, in France right now, people want stuff. It sounds good, but they don't want to pay for it. People want free stuff that somebody else is going to pick up the tab for. This is how, this is how they got health care through. This is the whole premise of wealth redistribution. The government knows how much you need, what you need to have, and will be better at allocating those resources than you or than the market. This is collectivism. Now, people would say to me, Buck, what about Social Security? We already have this. Yeah, I know. We're already trending toward a Democrat socialist state. That's happening. It's been happening now for the last... 60 years or so, maybe more than that. Some would argue the last 100 years, but certainly the last 50 or 60 years, since the 1960s, the Great Society programs. We have been moving in this direction. And the, the time when you get real revolutionary fervor is when it's not when people are just scared or when there's deprivation. Yeah, obviously people can get unsettled and there can be unrest just because of scarcity, because people are destitute or you have enough of an app. But, but that also can keep people busy because they're trying to make ends meet. You have real revolutionary combustible stuff when people have unmet expectations and a sense that they have been wronged. That's when they mobilize. And what you're going to see with the middle class in this country, if the Democrats have their way, is there are all these promises and if they start to get more of them, if they start to implement some of this, what will happen very quickly is they'll realize, oh, we can't pay for this. And then either the tax rates on the middle class will become outrageous. It'll, it'll be what they have in, in Sweden or Denmark, you know, 60, 70 percent. And, you know, go spend some time over there. Not a lot of people that I think you'd really, you know, really want to change places with if you're somebody that enjoys individual rights and freedom and, and private property. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad place. I'm saying I don't think as an American, that's what you'd want. But the middle class is going to have to pay 60% of their income, all income to the state. And then they'll realize, well, hold on a second. Now my quality of life is really going down. And we don't have a government bureaucracy that's efficient enough to deliver on these services. So then the services aren't going to be as good as we're promised. So now you're going to have people that are paying more money than they, than they were told they'd have to pay getting services that aren't nearly as good as they were told they would be. And we're talking about tens of millions. We're talking maybe the majority of the American people, or at least the majority of the American taxpayer. And then things go one of two ways. They either realize the error of this trajectory and scale it back, or they double down. They do what Democrats always do. Oh, the only answer is a bigger state, even more taxes, even more government control. And this is, to borrow from Hayek, the road to serfdom. This is how it happens. No one gets on the road to serfdom thinking, you know what's going to be awesome when the state controls every aspect of my life and I have no real control over my destiny 
and the property that I have is just what the state allows me to allows me to keep. No, that, that's a, it's a, it's generally a gradual process toward that from a free society and its descent into into fascism from a free society or relatively free society as those freedoms are lost. Most places never even get to that point. But this is this is the the macro dynamic that's playing out in America, in Europe, and it is going to be, uh, it's going to get ugly. It is going to get ugly. All right, we've got uh, more on this. And then also I want to talk about immigration and uh, Trump's discussion with Xi Jinping about China and where all that's going. We have a jam-packed show. We'll be back in just a moment. But Buck, you might say, we don't have people as crazy as some of these street protesters in France. We don't have, oh, oh, oh no, but of course we do, right? We already have an Antifa movement in this country. Right now, Antifa is pretty fringe, but what if we did have a major economic recession, downturn, collapse? What if their revolutionary rhetoric all of a sudden was supported not just by hard left Democrats, but by mainstream Democrats as well? Do you think that they are committed enough to go the distance and try for real unrest? I, I can't answer the question. I can only say that they certainly are crazy enough. Our friend Andy No, who some of you know from uh, Quillette, which is an online publication of a journal of, I think, uh, controversial thought might be a good way of putting it, which means it's interesting to read. Uh, Andy was out at a Seattle Antifa protest over the weekend, and we, we had to bleep some of this out, but... They recognized our friend Andy. We had a moment, was it last week, I think, to talk about what he saw in Portland. Well, this is now in Seattle. And this is what one of the American Antifa Seattle protesters said to Andy No about this moment in our politics. Play one. I can see in your eyes that you got some Asian descent. Check your history. The history shows you that you can't trust your enemy, but that you're using your enemy against us. Spying. Yeah, because it's coming. It's coming. I'm bringing the energy. That's why they keep checking on you. You understand? Because they want to know. Because I'm known to do this for real. Because some of us didn't really come to talk. Some of us really come to die, dude. Are you willing to die for a YouTube shit? Yeah, but that's what's gonna come, man. Death is coming to you, dude. To feel that energy, that's why your heart's pounding. I'm here to let you know, judgment's here. And you spying and doing this punk is gonna get you end up hurt. Death is coming to you, the Antifa protester says. Some of us are ready to die for this stuff, he says. Now, might just be rhetoric uh, probably is but he's certainly not a very well-adjusted individual and it's troubling that there are so many people i mean if he were to say that over a loudspeaker in front of antifa do you think any of them would have told him oh no we're not about that we're not about threats or violence they run around in paramilitary gear pushing stuff lighting stuff on fire breaking things tackling people punching people Pretty sure they're okay with violence. Now, when you have a revolutionary faction in a country like ours that is 
stable and doing well, you could say, oh, we can ignore them. It's fine. But things change. Small factions of hardliners and extremists can be very opportunistic and go back and read the history of revolution in Russia. You'll see the Bolsheviks were never very popular, never had widespread support, but they were very committed. I'm not saying that Antifa is about to take over roughly half the world, and but we do need to keep an eye on the more extreme leftists while we have this problem of a crushing debt and a social welfare state that can't pay for itself looming. Big Hour 2 coming up. Ho, 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 and a Merry Christmas. If you want the most patriotic, freedom-loving, Christmas spectacular coffee. Black Rifle Coffee is what you need, my friends. I drink it every day. It's how I get my day started. In fact, I'm really up to two or three cups a day now, and it's absolutely delicious. I mean, I'm a guy who's a little bit of a coffee snob. I mean, I like the good stuff, and I drink Black Rifle because it's the best stuff. Plus, it's a company run by, owned by, founded by veterans who give back to the veteran community. So you need to check them out. This should be the coffee company that you have delivering your coffee every month. The best tasting, most energizing, veteran and first responder helping coffee company in the world, Black Rifle Coffee. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Visit blackriflecoffee.com slash buck and receive 15% off your order. That's blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. Again, one more time. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas, everybody. Blackriflecoffee.com slash buck for 15% off. I don't want to make any firm predictions. I'm just saying the timetable matters. The immediacy of their actions matter. The broad scope, both structural, as we discussed, as well as the uh, tariffs and the lower tariff barriers. All that needs to start fast. And we will be tracking it. We will be tracking it because we've had promises in the past from China. Okay. Okay. And the promises have not worked out. Now, in the spirit of goodwill, And again, President Xi's amazing uh, presentation to President Trump Saturday night. In that positive, optimistic spirit, we have strong expectations. But we must track this. On the China issue, he's been talking about this way before he ran for president. And this is a major issue for him. And again, I think this was a breakthrough moment for the two presidents reaching this agreement. The president is determined to continue to move forward on our economic path. And I think this was a great breakthrough. And now the two teams have a lot of work to turn this into a real agreement. So President Trump met with his uh, counterpart, Chinese premier, President Xi Jinping, by the way, it's always great to go with president because that way, I'm sorry, to go with premier because I, th- that could be the prime minister or the president depending on the country. Otherwise, you end up talking about, you know, uh, President Merkel or something and that everyone makes fun of you. But if you say premier instead of prime minister, uh, then you're fine. So that's an, that's an important little, little trick. Um, anyway, Chancellor Merkel is really, I think, the way she's referred to. So. Yeah, there you go. Um, Where were we? Oh, yes, talking about China. So China and the U.S. have agreed to a short-term diplomatic uh, trade ceasefire, if you will. They've decided they're going to give this three, you know, the ninety days, three months, to try to work something out here, where they're not going to just keep on slapping bigger and bigger tariffs on each other. This was down in Buenos Aires. 
place I really want to go, by the way. I always want to check out Buenos Aires. I hear really good things. Um, but Trump also did something that might uh, put the Chinese somewhat on edge here. Um, there, remember, their economies had a really, really tough year. Their market's gotten gotten walloped. It's been bad. Uh, but Trump appointed Lighthizer um, to run this whole thing. And, you know, he's going to be Robert Lighthizer, who's a U.S. trade representative. He's going to be the guy negotiating with Beijing. Uh, this means that you're not going to see Trump back down, I think. You're going to see, or you're not going to see the administration back down. They still think that they're going to win this thing. That's why Trump tweeted out, My meeting in Argentina with President Xi of China was an extraordinary one. Relations with China have taken a big leap forward. Very good things will happen. We're dealing from great strength, but China likewise has much to gain. If and when a deal is completed, level the field. So here is how I see it. Here's a concern that I have. China is playing a long-term game, and we are operating not just in four-year election cycles, but really in 24-hour news cycles. China views itself as our only real strategic, uh, or rather they are our only real strategic threat over the long term, and they're right. The Chinese economy, U.S. economy for single nation states. The EU is the, technically the largest economy in the world, but that's not really fair. I mean, because the EU is a whole lot of countries and they don't get along on a lot of things and they're separate nation states. Uh, for single nations, China and, the EU, China and the United States are the, are the biggest. And the Chinese view their economic power as essential to their long-term hard power, military, uh, military force. Uh, they understand that if they become dominant as an economic power, that essentially military power will follow because, one, they've got a massive and disproportionately male population, a young and male population, and they're going to have very advanced armaments. And, you know, they could, if they eclipse us economically, the assumption is that they will also eclipse us militarily. It's just a question of when. And that also factors into what they're really willing to do here. I think that there is a zero-sum nature in much of the Chinese thinking on this. They're not looking, and this is where I think there might be a flaw in the administration's approach, although maybe Trump understands this very well, and that's why he's taking this approach, so that they expose this mentality from the Chinese. The Chinese are not looking to find a world, and this is a very... America, we're number one, but we want everyone to be great kind of view. The Chinese government, you know, the, the Standing Committee and Xi Jinping, they're not hoping that America and China come to some agreement where everyone's just making more money and everything is cool. They want to beat us. They want, they want to win. They're not just looking for win-win. They want to win. And that is a different mentality and a different strategic goal than certainly what previous administrations have gone and they're trying to achieve. You know, it's it's not enough to just say to them, well, if, if you stop this and we have much freer free trade, not perfectly free trade, but we have much freer free trade, then then there's the real then there's a real possibility that, you know, everybody will be wealthier, everybody will be better off. The truth is that they want I th- the, the the intellectual property theft is a perfect example I'm talking about. Because that involves also military and trade secrets. They're not going to stop doing that. They're not going to stop. They may try to put in place some public modifications to those policies so they can say they've stopped. But there's no way they're going to stop. I mean, there's there's no aspect 
of the Chinese government that has any authority whatsoever is going to say, yeah, you know what? Instead of getting closer and closer to America in terms of its military, its trade secrets, its commercial applications of technology all the time and doing so for pennies on the dollar of what the U.S. spends in R&D and just the you know, blood, sweat, and tears of its entrepreneurs. Uh, we, we could just take that. Instead of that, we're, we're going to do it ourselves and try to catch up in the old-fashioned way. Let's have a fair fight. China doesn't want a fair fight. They don't want a fair fight economically, and eventually they're not going to want a fair fight militarily either, whether it's with us or the, the Indians or who knows. But you know, the, the Chinese have, have grand ambitions as a people and as a nation and they want to be number one, and that means number one at our expense. I think that's that's what our side hasn't really grasped yet. That's what our team, uh, you know, in this country, not just the Trump administration, but I think in general, just American foreign policy has a hard time dealing with. You know, we like to think of this world, you know, one where nationalism is is considered a bad thing. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is perfectly willing to embrace nationalism. Um, you know, in the e- the EU being the only place we'd say, oh no, Buck, they like their super, super state. Well, one is, you know, the Brexit with the UK, but also all those countries within the EU still have a very strong sense of their own national identity. You know, they have an economic union, but not a political union. So there's just not, it's not the same approach that the Chinese are taking to this that we would if we were in their shoes, which is just, let's just aim for overall prosperity and favorable relationships with our, you know, with other countries and all the rest of it. No, no, no. They actually want dominance. And dominance is going to cause, you know, the the quest for dominance with China is going to cause friction. One more point here about the Chinese talks that I just wanted to throw in there before we get on to a little bit of a discussion about what's going on at the border. And that has to do with actually the fentanyl epidemic. Play 10. One topic that we'll bring up will be the fentanyl problem that we have in the United States, which is a tremendous problem. I'll be uh, asking the president to do something about that. I think he'll be able to. If he puts that on a restricted category, uh, we'll be able to pretty much stop it right there. That would be to criminalize it in China would be a great thing. See, what's happening is fentanyl is being made in commercial-style laboratories in China, trans-shipped from China to Mexico, and then from Mexico, the cartels are moving fentanyl illegally in the United States and selling It's killing a lot of people. Uh, a lot of the, yeah, the opioid epidemic is partially heroin, which is also coming via Mexico, but for the opioids that are in pill form, fentanyl and carfentanil, which is even more powerful, than uh, normal fentanyl. That stuff is being made in China and somewhat in Mexico itself and then going across the border. So, you know, the the Chinese have a hand in preventing the poisoning of over 70,000 Americans. Do I think that they're really going to crack down on this all that much? No. I think China is just fine. As a general notion of, you know, it's better for my enemy to be suffering I don't think China is too worried about our opioid epidemic at all. I got a lot of people that are telling me, Buck, I'm tired of all the bias I see from the left on social media. We know Facebook and Twitter and these other companies are playing games. And I say, well, I got an idea. 
Be part of the unbiased social media revolution at snippy.com. Thousands of my listeners have joined snippy.com, and they're now getting all kinds of conversations going. You need to check it out. Snippy is an unbiased social media platform. It's all about conversation and building community. They're not just about freedom of expression. They guarantee that you can discuss topics freely, and you will not get shadow banned. You will not have people deciding that because you support the Second Amendment or because you support this country over other countries, hashtag MAGA, hashtag America first, that you're going to somehow evaporate from the internet. It's not going to happen. No shadow banning, no suppression of conservative thought. Snippy.com, now with an updated user interface and exciting new features, also available in the Apple App Store and now available for Android. Snippy is your new alternative social media. This is a very complex situation because Mr. Putin is clearly a slow learner. Uh, He is not recognizing that what he is doing is actually creating the animosity uh, against his people. He's not acting in the best interest of the Russian people. And he is actually causing NATO uh, to rearm and to strengthen the democracy's stance, the unified stance of all the democracies together, dealing with someone that we simply cannot trust. Has the relationship worsened since you've been Defense Secretary? Uh, There is no doubt uh, the relationship has worsened. He tried again to muck around in our elections uh, this last month, and we are seeing a continued effort along those lines. lot to unpack from what Secretary of Defense Mattis said there. Lots lots that we have to uh, get into now. One, let's just get right to it so we don't let this, you know, we, we don't miss a beat. Russia meddled in the midterm election. How many people have heard that anywhere before? Why do, you, why do we all think that is? Why is it that we're just hearing now about Russian meddling in the midterm election and, and in such a kind of a blasé, who cares way, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying Mattis doesn't care, but this isn't. The usual hair on fire. Oh, my gosh, Russia meddling in the election. You know, Mattis is saying this guy's being a punk. He's being difficult. He's causing problems for us. But he's also saying, look, you know, this is the sort of the way, this is kind of the way it is. And when we're trying to deal with Putin, we need to understand that he's a bad guy. But if the Democrats hadn't just picked up almost 40 seats in the House of Representatives, don't you think we'd be told... All over the place. Oh, my gosh, there was an attempt at Russian meddling and, and almost certainly an additional Russian meddling beyond that. Of, of course we would. This, this, would be the, this would be a nonstop story. If Republicans had held the House and gained seats in the Senate, the Russian meddling, just like with Hillary when she lost the election, everyone knew there was Russian meddling before. Everyone knew the Facebook. It was only after she lost that all, there was this need. To, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And it's so terrible. Oh, Hillary. Sorry, my because of my scratchy voice right now, I can't do the Hillary voice. It'll just come out like a like a wounded duck noise or something. Does that even sound like a wounded duck? I don't know what that was. But uh, Mattis, though, never one to shy away from a great one-liner. Uh, he said the following, play 15. We are Americans. We are not spectators in the arc of history. We make history. Reagan said it best, I do not believe, he said, in a fate that will befall us no matter what we do. 
I do believe in a fate that will befall us if we do nothing. America will sustain our military's warrior ethos because we must. With Congress and industry partners, we will hold the line and we will send a simple message to any potential adversary. Not today. Your military cannot win it, so don't even try it. That is absolutely the case right now. It's good that we have somebody of Mattis's stature and who commands as much respect within the military as he does to say it. That said, uh, this is this is not inevitable. Our economic dominance is not inevitable. Our military dominance is certainly not inevitable. And you know, th- there's a lot that's in the process of changing right now that people don't spend much time thinking about. But you know, he- here's an example: hypersonic weapons sound like they're going to be increasingly a large part of the uh, offensive military capabilities of major developed nations. And that changes the game in terms of missile defense technology. You know, what's what is possible when you have missiles, including nuclear missiles that go a whole lot faster and can get around traditional um, defenses. Think about how that begins to change the dynamic of of what we have had for a while here, which is a sense of relative stability among the at least the nuclear armed states, with the exception of North Korea. I mean, the only thing that really keeps Pakistan stable in our eyes is that India is right next door looking at them like, you want to go? We can go. We can do this. And everyone just sits sits around them holding their breath saying, oh, my gosh, please don't do this. I guess you can't say anything and hold your breath. But you get the basic idea. Oh, and then uh, speaking about future nuclear states and how things could go very badly, very quickly, you have a General Keene, General Jack Keene over at Fox talking about what's going on with, uh, with Iran. I've got to say this is... We, uh, I've got to say, this is one of the areas where the administration has received, you know, has received all this pushback. Oh, our European allies, and you know, with the Iran deal, if we if we step out of the Iran deal, all these terrible things are going to happen. None of these terrible things happen. None of these terrible things happen. Play seven. Three weeks after the president was inaugurated, Iran uh, test fired a ballistic missile, and and clearly what he did is he sanctioned him right away and told them that we were not going to stand for their continuing aggressive and malign behavior in the region. We're slapping some pretty hard sanctions on, uh, on the Iranians. And now we're, now we're into the energy and the oil part of it. Their, their economy is struggling. Their currency is in free fall. Their inflation is spiraling out of control. There's fuels, uh, food shortages on a regular basis. There, there's power shortages that are coming up almost weekly. And civil unrest in the nation is growing. So the Iranian regime, for the first time since they took power in 1980, they clearly are feeling pressure that they have never, ever felt before. He's saying it's the most pressure Iran's ever been under. And this is why the Obama deal was so egregious. Ne- never mind just the, the pallets of cash traded for U.S. hostages and the decision to essentially allow the rest of U.S. Mideast policy and interests just fall into disrepair because they didn't, the Obama team didn't want to upset the Iranian mullahs. The sanctions were working. I mean, the Iranian, the Iranian government was in really bad shape and there was a sense that, you know, unrest was coming and, you know, it, it would be great if we could I mean, it would be such a fantastic thing for the Iranian people and for the whole world if there could finally be 
You know, how about a revolution where the good guys win? You know, we're the result. Our country's the result of a revolution where the good guys win. How about that in Iran? It would really be a counter-revolution in a sense to what happened in 1979. But pressure on the regime to get them to comply with the reasonable expectations of the international community. I mean, this this is good. Not sending U.S. troops, not putting our people in, in arms way. You know, economic warfare, which is what we're doing. I mean, we are waging economic warfare against the Iranians and doing so right now pretty successfully. But not a lot of media coverage of it, because can you imagine if people become aware that Trump's policy on Iran is just more sound, just better decision making than anything the Obama team with Kerry and the rest of them were able to cook up? I mean, I I think that is one of the nightmares of the establishment left. It turns out Trump is a great foreign policy president and that Obama isn't even in the same league. Well, definitely we need more wall. We need more manpower. Um, we need Congress to fix the loopholes in the laws. Until those loopholes are fixed, what the situation is not... Well, in particular with the family units and the, the ability to come to this country um, and be released into the United States while awaiting a court date that is, is long down the road. Uh, we need Congress to act and, and deal with uh, the immigration laws and see if they can fix that situation for us. Otherwise, the pull factor is going to continue to be there and these individuals are going to keep coming. So that was uh, Border Patrol, Carla Provost. I remember interviewing her not long ago. She's a very serious lady, very very much all about law enforcement. And this migrant caravan, folks, has has not gone away. Uh, the media coverage of it has temporarily died down, but, but this is still very much a, an issue that needs to be resolved. Um, you have, in just the last day, you have a group of Hondurans in the caravan uh, scale the Mexico border wall in Tijuana, and then they were taken into custody. So, so people are still trying to sneak across. And what I'm hearing, and I was speaking to some sources today about this, I'm, I'm still really hoping to be able to get to the border. I tried to go last week. Of course, this week I've got, I'm sick. I got a Christmas party every day pretty much this week. And, you know, I guess partied a little hard this past weekend for Miss Molly's birthday. So I'm trying to play a little bit of catch up now. But, you know, I, I, I want to get down to the border and see for myself what's going on and bring you all that firsthand knowledge about the caravan so i'm i'm working on that i'm going to try to talk to the powers that be tomorrow about getting me down there even even just for a few days to really see with my own eyes what's going on um and i would just do the show from don't worry i'll do the show from down there we've got a good uh, station in san diego that i can i can be uh, be live at her for a few days but you've got people scaling this fence what i'm being told by my sources and i mean there's all there's photos of this by the way i mean this this is happening people are sneaking across the border at the fence and what you're finding out is that there's also an effort right now, um, there's, a, there's an effort to kind of gather together at one part of the border, and more people are showing up. You know, you have 6,000 of them that, were, that, that have gathered together, um, and, and more are showing up. And the idea is that if enough of them get to the border, just think about how this plays out. And it's really very... It's very Alinsky. It's very Alinskyite in what's going on here. If enough people get to the border at one time and then they strategically pick weak parts of the wall, um, they pick weak parts of the wall to go to, and then all at once they rush, right? They try to rush the border 
a lot of them are going to get in. Uh, a lot of them will get past Border Patrol because there's simply too much border and not enough agents. And once they get into the interior of the United States, I mean, it's it's all over. You're, you're never going to find them. By the way, I saw the Pew survey data that just, I think it just came out today about illegal, illegal uh, particularly illegal immigrant Mexicans in the United States. And and sure enough, who who wants to guess? Who wants to guess how many there are? 11 million. Oh, wow. The number's the same as it was last year. And, the year, you know, they have these charts that show up and down. And th- their claim is that there are a million fewer illegal alien Mexicans in the country now than there were in 2007, but that there are, uh, I guess, a million more non-Mexican illegal aliens in the country. That's why the, the number essentially stays static at 11 million total. It's just more Central Americans and fewer fewer Mexicans overall. I'm told you, I, I just I don't believe the number, and not because I'm a conspiracy theorist. I don't believe the number because the number doesn't make any sense. It's unrealistic to believe that that number just stays where it is for all that time just because. I, I just don't believe that. I just don't think that that makes For all the reasons I've told you, and also those math nerds at MIT, um, you know, they crunch the numbers. I'm sorry, not MIT, at Yale. They crunch the numbers, they realize... But what happens if we're at the border? Here's the other the other uh, possibility. What happens if at the border, the uh, sorry, my voice is starting to fail me a little bit, team. Uh, the different groups that have gathered there rush, and let's say there's an incident. You know what? What if somebody in the border patrol uh, tries to stop a few migrants, and they, you know, a group of them attack a border patrol agent, and he feels like his life or her life, whichever we're talking about with that Border Patrol agent, is truly in jeopardy and draws a firearm and shoots. You know, this, this can happen. I mean, this, this is not a, an unforeseeable situation. And now, I mean, the moment you have any kind of lethal force incident at the border, you're going to have the, um, you're going to have the activist left completely lose their mind. And, and then they're going to be talking about you know, shoot on sight, militarized border, you know, racist Nazi border patrol, all, all this stuff. And meanwhile, you know, no one is forcing Democrats to answer hard questions about what what should be done with these thousands of people who have gathered there. The Trump administration said you have to show up at a legal port of entry to get into the United States. You can't just run into the country and at any point along the U.S.-Mexico border. And we've got thousands of people that think that they're just going to come through, the, and, and there are probably thousands more gathering. I mean, we're not even really sure. Think about how quickly they went from a, remember this, how quickly did they go from a thousand miles away to at the border? It was a matter of days. You know, oh, God, there were so many, so many stupid pundits out there running around talking about how you know they're, they're, they're so far away, and the people that are making an issue of this, or you know, they're, they're just fear-mongering, and I mean, no. They're not fear-mongering. It was true, as we know, and that's why uh, I was happy that I had a, a chance to go on the Tucker show and talk with him about how we've just been lied to all along about this caravan. And, and you, you know, we're being lied to about it right now. We're being lied to about it, and the Congress isn't doing a damn thing about it. Uh, Congress is just, it's just so useless on the issue of immigration, just so, so worthless. They don't take enough action uh, when it comes, well, on, on immigration in any in any way, you know, and now but we're being told that they've 
they've pushed off um, they've pushed off dealing with the the possible government shutdown the budget fight till the Friday the Friday before Christmas. Oh, okay, the Friday before Christmas. That's cuz that's when they're going to really take a they're going to take a stand. That's when they're going to decide, "Oh, I've I I'm I'm going to, you know, create a big political storm right before Christmas and New Year's Eve and Buck's birthday, by the way. Very important day. You know that's not going to that's not going to happen. You you know there's not going to be any uh fight really over the I mean, uh, I guess I guess I could be wrong. Here here's what they're saying. Lawmakers plan to extend funding through December 21st. Okay, so they're passing a very short budgetary fix. And the uh, disagreements over whether, whether to fund President Trump's proposed border wall are what's pushing this, right? So, that, so here's what CNBC says. The Republican-controlled Congress hoped to strike a deal uh, with Democrats this week, even as President Trump's demand for $5 billion to fund his proposed border wall raised the prospect of a partial government shutdown. George H.W. Bush's death and funeral arrangements shifted the focus. Trump was set to meet with Senate and House Democratic leaders and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi on Tuesday morning. That delayed until next week because of the death here. And uh, Senate Democrats have said they'll agree to put no more than $1.6 billion toward border security and fencing, but not the physical wall that Trump seeks. This is just, this is just Democrats not wanting Trump to be able to follow through on a campaign promise. This is just Democrats deciding that the president of the United States shouldn't be able to adequately defend our southern border because if he think about this for a moment if president did get that wall built i i think then he even cruises to reelection if if we're in the midst of a recession i think if president trump gets that wall built we're 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 in for four more years of trump and the democrats know that if you can't make the argument now meaning if republicans aren't willing to explain why we need a border wall right now. It's, it's, it's never going to happen. And it's never going to happen because there's no better time. And time is running out. And once, once you have even more Democrats in the House, then it's even less likely that you would get any kind of concession. Because right, right now, it's really just about how much money and where the money's going to be spent. But there's supposed to be some kind of action on the border wall. They're supposed to be, or not on the wall, on the border. Right? They're willing to pay for some security measures. But what we see is, in real time, a case study of how effective a wall would be. In real time, we see that the places in, uh, in the Tijuana, California corridor here, you know, outside San Diego, San Ysidro Port and Mexicali, uh, that the places with good with a good wall with a good barrier don't have crossings. The places where the barriers been breached are places where the barrier is either in disrepair or unfinished or incomplete. Of course, the, of course, the barrier matters. And you see Border Patrol right now gathering in such a way as to leverage as much as possible this protection or this this barrier to entry that they have. And places where they don't have it, obviously, they're at a greater disadvantage to do their jobs. So we, we, we have essentially, and I, I wish Republicans would just make this case. I wish they would be more clear in this. We have a running advertisement for a wall happening right now with this caravan. I don't just mean, oh, my gosh, we have a caravan. We need to build a wall to prevent people from illegally coming to the United States. 
I mean that the caravan is being stopped from coming into the United States by a wall. So we see that it works. There's no question that it works. You know, we don't have, uh, you know, a hundred border patrol agents linking arms on the border and saying, well, you can't run through us like that. that that's not going to work. There's not sufficient manpower there to do that. But this requires a fix. And, and you know, and, and the Democrats are going to challenge us in court. They're going to say that uh, Trump doesn't have the right, doesn't have the executive authority to say that you, you have to show up at a port of entry. You can't just cross the border and then claim asylum. A lot of them are doing that, claiming defensive asylum. People say, why would you do that if you could show up at a port of entry? Why go through the asylum process? You can just walk into America, obviously. And if you get caught, you just say, oh, I, I fear violence in my country. And ultimately, I said, just Democrats are never asked any of the hard questions here. They don't have to go on the record. Why doesn't all of Honduras qualify for a second? Could all of Honduras show up at the U.S.-Mexico border and say, we want to flee our country? What if a million Hondurans marched to the U.S.-Mexico border and said, our country is too dangerous, we need to, we need to get out? Do they all get to get put through the, the process, the asylum process? Is our asylum process essentially a suicide pact for our immigration laws? Is, is that what it's supposed to be? No one's ever asking any of these questions. Democrats, all they do is talk about women and children and tear gassing. Oh, gosh, just cry lots of tears for all the people that, you know, Nancy Pelosi, she's not in their neighborhoods. She's not dealing with them. She doesn't care what the, the difference in the job or the labor market is as a result of a huge influx of illegal aliens. She doesn't care. It doesn't affect her one bit, right? In fact, it's better for her. More, more of a servant class to wait on her. It's true of a lot of these elite libs, by the way. They love illegal immigrant labor because they like the idea of being able to hire people who basically have no choice but to work for less than market wages. That's, that's the way that it goes. I want to say one thing about him that was not picked up, really, because as a candidate, he said, those who think we're powerless to do anything about the greenhouse effect are forgetting about the White House effect. And then he signed into law the Clean Air Act Amendment of 1990, one of the most sweeping environmental yeah. statutes ever. Yeah. This president that we have now is trying to unravel everything that he did and Obama did. And if I ever become a one-issue voter, it will be about pollution and the greenhouse effect and, and Can the we fact focus that, on the president yeah. please I, I, just, I don't want to talk about Trump we're honoring a uh, great president me a second, please. I, I want to talk about but the we're honoring but I'm not interested in your one issue I don't care what you're interested in I'm talking well, I don't care you what you're what? interested Damn in we'll either. be right back wow got a little got a little tense there on the view and that was Megan McCain who some of you might recall formerly hosted this time on radio, uh, getting into it with Joy Behar. I can't do Joy's vo voice right now because my throat is swollen up because I'm sick. But uh, just, know, just know that in my head I'm doing the Joy Behar voice, which I've been told is actually one of my better impressions. And Joy Behar got very upset there because she was getting called out, and she, and she should get called out. She should get called out because what she's doing is what all these libjourno types, she's not even journalist, I don't know what she is, she's kind of a, I don't know. Just She's just annoying. But she does this thing where, okay, we're talking about Bush 41. And then all of a sudden it has to be Trump is bad. Bash Trump. Can't we just say what? Can we at least, if we're going to bash somebody, can it at least be a fight over the legacy of George H.W.? But you know, you notice, you know, they don't compare. They don't say George H.W. Bush, unlike Obama, 
who had no ability whatsoever to get Republicans, uh, to meet Republicans halfway, to work across the aisle, to be bipartisan. You know, Obama was a scorched earth partisan president. So, you know, very different from what George H.W. Bush was like. You know, they don't do that. They just do it. They just do it to bash Trump. They don't say, oh, well, look at uh, look at how different Bush 41 was from that philandering, sexual assaulting, you know, skirt chasing maniac Bill Clinton. Uh, look, look at what a difference in terms of the dignity of the office. No, no, they, they only do it when it comes to Bush. By the way, that that few, we'll get more into uh, the passing of the president, by the way, uh, coming up at the top of the hour. I just wanted to talk about this for a minute. Uh, apparently, this is sort of gossipy. Ooh, now we're doing gossip on the Buck Sexton show. Hey, ladies, who wants to talk about some gossip? Uh, but get this B word under control. Joy Behar tears into Meghan McCain off air after the conservative host uh, lashed at her for throwing shade on President Trump during the View's tribute to George H.W. Bush. Yeah, I mean, of course, Joy Bay, this all, all she knows how to do is just trash trash Trump, and so that's why she went in that direction. Whoopi Goldberg uh, cut the mic. Show insiders tell Daily Mail. I know but some of you are like, Buck, why do you care about The View? I don't, except usually to make fun of it, uh, because it deserves to be made fun of. Show insiders tell DailyMail.com that the exchange continued off-air with Behar fuming, quote, if this blank doesn't stop. I'm quitting this damn show. I can't take this much more. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure she can take it, given the how how over how overpaid she is. Not a lot of not a lot of intellectual heft on the view. I gotta say, it's a pretty pretty soft, pretty weak show when it comes to the uh, thought processes involved in political analysis. But uh, nonetheless, good for Megan standing up there. Giving a little uh, little pushback against Behar. Let's talk about Bush 41 and his passing and what it means in just a moment. I gave it round two with my bourbon, pepper sauce, and sirloin steaks, courtesy of Omaha Steaks today. That's right. I had it for lunch. I went big, and they were delicious. Omaha Steaks is an amazing company that has a limited time offer for you. When you go to omahasteaks.com and enter code BUCK into the search bar, You'll get 74% off Omaha Steaks family gift package, usually $195. Now it's only $49.99. Order now and you'll get four hand-cut aged to tenderness top sirloin steaks, two savory premium pork chops, four chicken fried steaks, four Omaha Steaks burgers, four snappy kielbasa sausages, all beef meatballs, four perfectly brown potatoes au gratin, four made-from-scratch caramel apple tartlets, plus four more burgers free. It's a fifth-generation family-owned company. All this stuff is hand-cut by Master Butcher's in Omaha. Get this limited time package for $49.99 when you go to omahasteaks.com, type buck in the search bar, that's B-U-C-K, and add the family gift package to your cart. Don't wait, offer ends soon. Go to omahasteaks.com, type buck in the search bar to send the Omaha Steaks family gift package today. The President, for his nice best wishes to the Bush family, on behalf of a man that we all respected and liked very much, President Bush. And we very much appreciate that, Mr. President. Uh, we will be going back. I will be going back to Washington right after this day. And uh, we'll be spending three days of mourning and three days of uh, celebrating a really great man's life. So we look forward to doing that. And he certainly deserves it. He really does. He is a very special person. I spoke with 
uh, Jeb and George today. And we had great conversations, and we we uh, discussed actually for quite some time the father and how much they loved him and how much that he loved them. Words from the current president about the passing of George Herbert Walker Bush, 41st president of the United States. As you no doubt heard, he passed away uh, on November 30th in Houston, Texas. He was uh, 94 years old and had one of the most impressive resumes you could imagine. Um, He had been a war hero, a congressman, a vice president, CIA director, and he was uh, a guy who, in retrospect, a lot of people realize it was kind of an underrated, uh, an underrated president. You know, he had he had all the right uh, academic pedigree and and served his country. Was a war hero. Um, signed up, I think, for the Navy when he was eighteen, and you know had his political challenges. Had two unsuccessful runs for the Senate, uh, but he managed to impress people at the senior reaches of the RNC. And he got into the Nixon and Ford administrations as an appointee, including being a chairman of the Republican National Committee, U.S. envoy to China, and then director of the CIA. And he announced his uh, candidacy in 1980, lost to Reagan. But it was okay because Reagan was pretty awesome. And then he was the VP for Reagan, obviously, and then later served one tour. Only two presidents in in history, had been vice presidents before they became president right away. That's only twice. And the other one was Martin Van Buren. So you got to go quite a ways back, uh, quite a ways back for somebody who was a, a Veep who became president, which is pretty funny when you think about it. You'd think that usually the Veep would be, that the easiest stepping stone for anybody would be vice president to president, but it's just not how it works usually. Uh, here's... You know, you have a lot of people on the media, in the media right now, and, and one of the reasons why I, I, I am handling this later on in the show is because, one, I, I feel like a lot of you, I, my, my, my main contention here is just a lot of what you're hearing about George H.W. Bush is just meant to bash Trump. And a lot of it also now, when we go back and look at it, we realize that the media were vicious to, to George Bush, just like they were vicious to his son later on, and they're vicious to Trump now. Nothing has really changed. They've just gotten nastier, crazier, and more transparent about those things in the media. Um, uh, so, but, but there are a lot of people that are running around in the media right now who have great stories about you know fly fishing with HW. I mean, I was I was a little kid when HW was a uh, was president, so I don't really have any great personal stories of, of hanging out with him or anything like that. I actually never met the man, um, and uh, but here's somebody who certainly knew him very very well. And that is former Vice President himself, uh, Dick Cheney, Play Clip 12. Well, he had this amazing ability to sort of for the personal touch. You might get a, a note from him on something you've done. Uh, I remember um, 2004 election night, we're upstairs in the residence of the White House. And uh, well, this is when President Bush, 43, and I were running for re-election. And um, Lynn and I were there with the Bushes, a big crowd. But we had our granddaughter, their oldest granddaughter. She was about seven years old at the time. And the president walked over to her um, and uh, said, you're the youngest person here. I'm the oldest. Let's chat. And <laughs> sat down and spent a long time hmm. talking with the youngest person uh, in the room at that time. She's never forgotten it, obviously. She's got a picture of it and everything else. But he had that people touch, I guess, if you want to put it that way. There was no 
gesture that was too small or insignificant in terms of what he was willing to do to make people feel comfortable, to help when he could help. Uh, he just was one of the most thoughtful people I ever knew. So a lot of kind words there from, from Dick Cheney about Bush 41. And I think that that's pretty, pretty much echoed throughout the, from the people who knew him that he was a really good guy and a nice guy. Um, but then you also get into what what's happening, and it, and it was worse during the McCain funeral in that era. But the notion of everything about about Bush is really, you know, all the all the different stories and all the different uh, anecdotes are an opportunity to just beat up on Trump, and I find that very tiring, and I also find it to be uh, really. Uh, a little exploitative, um, but that's not a surprise at all when you look at the media that we have and the way they conduct themselves. And speaking of the media and the way they conduct themselves, you know, uh, negative coverage that favors the Democrat over the Republican, uh, dare I even say fake news, uh, this, is not a, this is not a new phenomenon, and I think that that's, that's important for everybody to know, to, to remember. Here's what Bush was saying back in 1992 when he was talking about the economy. Uh, play clip 13. I think they're feeling negative about the economy because they hear 92% of the coverage on the television, where a lot of people get their news from, on the economy has been negative. There are some good things. Interest rates are down. People aren't being robbed by inflation anymore. Uh, inventories are down. Uh, we have it. I think we're poised for a dramatic recovery. Yeah. They were poised for a dramatic recovery. I mean, and then you got into the 90s, and the markets were absolutely booming. Of course, Bill Clinton gets credit for that, right? I mean, you know, who gets credit for what economy? This is one of the great games that everyone in the media likes to play because it has so much political power. You know, when things are good, you want to have your team get credit. When things are bad, you want to blame the other guy. I mean, that's, that's quite obvious, and that's what happens all the time. Uh, but you know, you look you look at the way that now we're being told. Oh well, Bush, you know, uh, Bush was a a coalition builder. Look how he handled the first Persian Gulf War. Look at look at the way that he handled himself in the world stage. And with you, know, and some people would would actually criticize a little bit of the uh, what's the, what's the best way of saying this? His willingness to give away some degree of U.S. sovereignty to these multinational bodies. I mean, I, I think that there are people who have a real an understandable had a, had a real problem with that. That's a legitimate criticism, a criticism of his legacy and a criticism of of how he acted on on the world stage. Um, I don't think it's a damning one, but he was certainly a guy who was, dare I say, a, a globalist. Uh, he took a very internationalist worldview, and, and his decision to raise taxes uh, was a promise that he broke. Right, he broke his you know read my lips, no new taxes. And then he raised taxes, and then thanks to Ross Perot and you know, the third-party candidate mess, you get President Bill Clinton who comes along. I mean, I just, I got to think in retrospect, whoever voted for Bill Clinton over George H.W. Bush, that's such a fascinating, who looks at those two guys, who looks at these two men and says, yeah, you know what, I want to I wanna go with that guy, the governor of Arkansas who, you know, Perot got 19% of the vote, everybody. 19% of the vote. So, you know, the whole Clinton presidency, for all the talk you hear now uh, from libs about how, you know, they, they've they won every popular vote and blah, 
the whole Clinton presidency was really only popular, only possible rather, because of a fluke. Because of a fluke. Um, but that's that's what, But at least we don't blame the Russians. I mean, I'm not saying it was an illegitimate election. Anyway, George H. W. Bush, great man by by all standards, I think, and uh, you know he'll be missed, and and the country is uh, in a feeling of mourning right now. But you know, I, I like to think more about about the legacy of individuals. Although I will say the only because I have no emotional attachment to a man that I, I didn't know personally. Uh, but the one thing that really kind of choked me up, and I think some of you know what I'm talking about, is his dog lying by the casket. Man, that just... I don't know what it is about dogs and their and their owner and their the, the bond between them. And, you know, it was a service dog. But if you haven't seen it, look at that. Just look at that photo for a moment of George H.W. Bush in, in the casket and his service dog right next to him. I had a friend ask me recently, Buck, what, what do you do if you get hacked? And I said, well, step one is don't get hacked. Don't expose your stuff. Don't allow your information online to get pillaged by people that are going to exploit it or sell it or do anything bad with it, okay? That's why you need ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN has easy-to-use apps that work in the background of whatever electronic device I'm using, okay? You need to check this out for yourself. ExpressVPN anonymizes your internet browsing, it encrypts your data, and hides your public IP address. So especially if you're ever using public Wi-Fi, you don't want somebody to be able to get into all your stuff, and you don't want third-party companies accessing all of your private information online. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash buck. That's expressvpn.com slash buck for three months free with a one-year package. Visit expressvpn.com slash buck to learn more. This idea that the media used to be fair or even a little friendly to Republican presidents is, is a joke. I just want everyone to know that. And, and as we're talking now about George H.W. Bush and some of the revisionism around how the media treated him, just remember that it, it, it's, it's not a new thing for the media to be fake news. It's not a new thing for them to be disrespectful to Republicans. All the dynamics that you see with CNN now and with MSNBC and with others, but particularly with CNN and ABC and NBC, you know, the network broadcast and CBS, all the dynamics of bias in the coverage of the, the whole notion of being objective journalists, it's just one big lie, all of that has existed all along. And, and this moment where we're all talking about George H.W. Bush, I think is a, is a good time to remember. I mean, here's when he was vice president running, had just been vice, or yeah, was vice president running for the presidency. Uh, he went on Dan Rather's show CBS, you know, on CBS Evening News, and they were talking, they're supposed to talk about, um, you know, his what he wants to do as president, why he's running for president. But Dan Rather, in classic, I'm a big, you know, big J liberal journo, uh, decides to just dig in and, and go after him. I mean, really try to go after the president on Iran-Contra, which is something that now libs just bring up as a short... It's Halliburton. It's just like Halliburton. You know, when libs want to... When they want to bush George W... Bush. When they want to bash... <laughs> when they want to bush George W. Bash, uh, they just say Halliburton. When they want to bash Cheney, they just say Halliburton. It's shorthand. They don't even know what it really means. Just bad. Halliburton, bad. Iran-Contra, bad. They don't know anything beyond that. 
And in this exchange, you kind of get that sense. Because remember, I mean, Dan Rather's really drilling down. At it. It's kind of nothingness, but he's just trying to uh, get... It's a cross-examination. It's not really a normal journalistic exchange. He's trying to get George H.W. Craw, uh, caught up in a lie. Do we call him 41 instead of 43? We've got to have a better way of talking about this. Uh, but here's how it goes. Play the clip. Discuss what I talked to the president, because there's a principle involved. Nothing to do with Iran-Contra. It's the principle of confidentiality but between Mr. the president Mr. and Vice the vice president. president. Mr. Vice President, yes. the president himself has said he wants all the facts out. He gave up such things as even his own diary. Every principle, including Secretary Schultz, he gave up some of it. Well, Dan, let's be careful here because you're. Yes, sir. I want you to be careful, Mr. Vice President, because I will be careful. But I want the problem here is that you repeatedly said in the meetings, you said in a meeting in which Secretary Schultz, in the most forceful way, registered his objections, and then you said you never heard anybody register objections. If it was the most forceful way, I've heard George Schultz be very, very forceful. And if I were there and he was very, very forceful at that meeting, I would have remembered that. I don't remember that. Then and how that do you explain that you I'm can't saying. remember it and the other people at the meeting say because he was maybe apoplectic? I wasn't there at that point. You weren't, the, you weren't in the meeting? I'm not suggesting. I'm just saying I don't remember it. I don't want to be argumentative, Mr. Vice President. You do, Dan. <laughs> no, this is not a no, great sir, night because I, I want to talk about why I want to be president. Why those Wait, 41- Paul, pause it for a second. Did, have you ever heard Dan Rather get like that with anybody who wasn't a Republican? You know, just contradicting him, essentially going on hearsay. Well, other people who were in a meeting said that somebody was upset about something, and you're saying he wasn't upset about it, so you must be you must be lying. This is what he's saying. And he's really and he's just you can just tell he's just argumentative, he's undermining. It's not it's not just Q and A, it's Q and attack. It's question and ambush, not question and answer. And this was what Dan Rather, of course, built his career on, which was being a Democrat who pretends to be a journalist. Rather's a huge lib, huge lib, and not a very impressive one either, not a very smart one, very lucky, right place, right time, made a lot of money because of it, but not somebody that the generation currently of media personalities, writers on air has anything to learn from. I mean, this guy's just lucky he came along when he did and got the jobs that he did. But continue on with this. By the way, notice how Bush, who you don't think of as feisty, Bush fights back. He's like, you want a peace, son? Let's go. Play it. Percent of the people are supporting me. And, and Mr. I Vice don't President, think it's these fair questions to judge a whole career. It's not fair to judge my whole career by a rehash on Iran. How would you like it if I judge your career by those seven minutes when you walked off the set in New York? Well, now, Mr. would you like that? Uh, Mr. I Vice have President, for you, but I don't have respect for what you're doing here tonight. Mr. Vice President, I think you'll agree that your qualification for president and what kind of leadership you'd bring to the country, what kind of government you'd have, what kind exactly. of people to have around him is much more but just, important. Just pause it for one second. Just for those you don't know, which you all probably know this better than me, but Dan Rather was angry because CBS Evening News decided to uh, broadcast the end of a tennis match on a Friday, and he walked off set during it. Uh, and, and, and it was six minutes, actually. Six minutes without any picture being transmitted. Uh, that was according to people at CBS. So... So Dan Rather threw it through a tantrum because they wanted to finish a professional tennis match instead of going to him be oh I'm Dan Rather with the news you know so I mean Dan Rather is a is a big self indulgent classic liberal journo narcissistic baby overpaid baby and he threw a tantrum and that's what Bush was referring to there so you know Bush Bush is like you want you want to play son let's play you want to mix it up let's mix it up all right go back John play more. 
than what you just referred to. I'd be happy well, to hold I want to be that. judged on the whole record. Well, and you're not. And I'm trying an to set the record straight. You Mr. invited me to come here to talk about. I thought the whole record. I, I want you to talk about the record. You sat in a meeting with George Shultz. Yes. He got apoplectic an when he found out that he you were you apoplectic. and the president were being part of sending Reagan. missiles to the Ayatollah Iran. Uh, uh, the Ayatollah of Iran. Can you explain how you were supposed to be the? Uh, you are. You're an anti-terrorist expert. We Iran was officially a terrorist state. You went around telling. I wanted those. Well, Mr. I Vice wanted President, Mr. the question Buckley is. Out of there. But Before you made us killed, hypocrites in the face of the killed. world. How could you? Go, how could bad. you sign on to okay. such a policy? Well, pause. 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 Who does this remind you of? Who does this remind you of? Getting a little bit of an Acosta tingle, aren't you? He's not waiting for answers. He's. This is a. This is a debate. This is. This is a a punditry battle now. Dan Rather was the was the main news anchor for CBS, a, quote, news anchor. And he's saying, quote, you made us look hypocritical in the eyes of the world. He might as well have said, you know, the caravan's not going to come to the border. It's not an invasion. It's not. That's not questions. You're speaking to the vice president of the United States, and you're, you're talking down to him and getting snippy with him like he's some schoolboy. This is not new. It is not new. So I think that's very important for everybody to recognize. Um, and, and just the way that he he injects his opinion. We just know about it now. We have alternatives now. But anyway, and he goes on to say, I thought this was a news program. It's a great line. But this is what I mean. They're, 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 they're snippy with each other. They're, they're, you know, or rather he's being snippy with Bush and Bush is, you know, fighting back. But this is nothing new, folks. I just want to point that out. They they don't like any Republicans. The lib media, they don't like Republicans. They're nasty to them. They undermine them. You know, they they they've already been going after Bush for a, for a hundred different reasons. There's no honeymoon period of saying nice things. They don't wait till the eulogy comes out. No, no, no. They they just go right into got to establish the narrative. Got to create a history that is damaging for this guy. And that's their that's their number one priority. That's how they go about it. That's what they're trying to do. So, you know, we got to defend his legacy, or else nobody else will. I mean, he's a great man, not perfect, but a really a really really solid dude. I feel like this happens every year, but now that we've got the Me Too movement going on, people are even more attuned to this perhaps than they were before. Songs that are no longer okay because of the sexual aggressiveness or the the undertones of them and and I, I sit here and I just I, I you know the, the one that that came up most recently uh, and and it's now being kicked off of certain radio stations is baby it's cold outside uh, which if you've never John are you familiar with this one do you know this song I've heard it but I'm not really a fan of it don't really care so Christmas so music in general yeah I mean so so baby it's cold outside is it's an old song uh, from 1944 written by Frank Loser, and it's a back-and-forth conversation with, with a guy who's trying to convince a woman to basically stay. And, and you know, initially, um, initially I thought, ah, well, you know, how bad could this really be? I, I, I went through the lyrics. I'll be honest with you, the lyrics to this are, uh, are interesting. I'm not saying it should be bad from the radio. Here's why, for one, it shouldn't be bad from the radio. Uh, it was a... It was a a sweeter, gentler time in the media, and people didn't, you know, they, they didn't think of these things as quite as literally as we do now. For one, they thought it was entertainment, uh, and two, 
you know, if you're going to ban Baby It's Cold Outside, then I feel like you probably also have to ban the Timeless Classic by DJ Khaled, Bitches and Bottles, which, John, are you familiar with that one? Never heard of it. That's that's a song that you could hear on the radio right now. In fact, it was on a, a workout. Back when I used to have the time and energy to work out, it was on a workout mix that I downloaded from the Internet. And I said, oh, my gosh, the song is so misogynistic. Uh, but Baby It's Cold Outside, the lyrics are, I really can't stay. And the guy says, baby, it's cold outside. And she says, I got to go away. He says, baby, it's cold outside. Uh, my mother will start to worry. And then he says, beautiful, what's your hurry? My father will be p- pacing the floor. Listen to the fireplace roar. So really, I'd better, I, I'd better scurry. Beautiful, please don't hurry. Well, maybe just a half or more drink. I'll, pour, I'll put on some records while I pour. And it just kind of goes on and on. And, uh, you know... It's it's supposed to be cute. I mean, it's not, but you know, he's he's he, he would. I I feel like you read the lyrics to "Baby, It's Cold Outside" and you think this guy would take no for an answer. She's just being a little, uh, you know, a little play. She's playing a little hard to get, you know, in the old school fashion. And uh, I, I feel like people just no longer are able to look at anything in their context. I mean, when you when you look at uh, Pepe Pepe Le, Le, Le Pew. Um, when you look at Pepe Le Pew, you see that uh, he said things, for example, that would have, and did things. Remember Pepe Le Pew? I am shy but willing. John, you know Pepe Le Pew, right? I'm not. Yeah, I remember that. I remember yeah. watching those cartoons as a kid. I mean, I, I gotta, I, I wish we had. Do we have some, is there some Pepe Le Pew that I could even sort of <laughs> remind myself of here? I don't even know. You know, but Pepe Le Pew was a guy who was a cartoon and used to be very kind of grabby and kissy and everything else. And uh, here. You are the aroma of spring flowers that bloom in the spring. Come, my little peanut of brittle. Hello, baby. I am the luxmith of love, no? I am the broken heart of love. I am the disillusion. I am the broken heart of love. He's not even really French. It's kind of like a mishmash European accent. Come here, my little peanut. Like, I don't know. That's not really, that doesn't strike me as that French. I feel like also they've had many different voice actors do him over the years. But, you know, producer Mike, where'd you go? Did I'm you here, man. Up? Oh, okay. There you are. Um, so what is this about the, about the teacher that says no, uh, n- no Santa Claus? Yeah. Um, and just a quick little disclaimer to those who might be traveling around with little kids. <laughs> um, yeah, there's a New Jersey teacher who told her first graders that there's no Santa Claus. I mean, what's up with that? I mean, are we really, you know, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit of a heretic on this one, Mike. Are we really supposed to keep lying to kids and telling them there's a Santa Claus? Why, why do we do that? I don't really know about this. Yeah. You know? Because kids love it, and we do things that kids love. <sighs> I, feel like, I feel like we shouldn't tell kids lies. Yeah. <laughs> See? I kind of agree with this teacher. We we can lie, we can lie, we can stop telling them lies when they're a little older. But why they're like uh, in the bliss of of their youth and 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 believing in things that make them feel good, you know? And is it really up to her to burst the bubble? And that well, that, I guess that, that's true. That pa- parents parents should be the ones that make the decision. Uh, but a New Jersey substitute teacher shattered the hearts of first graders, according to the New York, New York Post, here by telling them Santa Claus and his reindeers were reindeer reindeers. Good God, Buck, reindeer were uh, were not real. And then she unleashed on them. She told them Santa isn't real and parents just buy presents and put them under the tree. Oh, wow. So she went on like an anti-Christmas rant. So she really is a Grinch. 
Correct. In fact, there's probably another word that one might be able to use, but we have children listening. And so we'll just say she's a Grinch. Um, but indeed, yes, I, I think that it's up to parents. If I had kids, which, you know, hopefully one day, I feel like I would tell them the uh, I would tell them the whole truth and nothing but the truth about Santa and then just let them go into the mythology of it. But, yes, it is not up to teachers to tell people. Well, we covered a lot of ground here. We've got Pepe Le Pew. We've got uh, Santa's reindeer in. We, we really did a lot today. Uh, we do have roll call coming up in a moment, though, which will be fun. So stay with us. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for roll call. The dubstep roll call gets it done. Oh, man, my voice. A little raspy. It's a little bit of a. Uh... I got a little sick this weekend, so hopefully tomorrow it'll be better. Sometimes it gets worse, you know, a couple of days into it. Your voice really, your voice box really dries up. But today it's a little, been a little, uh, a little gravelly. All right, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton for all your roll call needs. Let's get to it. Keith writes, Buck, if the special prosecutor's final report turns out to be political in nature rather than a standard prosecutorial report, would it be subject to the OSC's new Hatch Act guidelines? Uh, Keith, it sounds like you may know more about this than me. Uh, new Office of Special Counsel Hatch Act guidelines? I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what those guidelines are. Um, but I'm, I'm guessing no. I'm guessing uh, that, it, that somehow this won't be a problem for the special counsel no matter what they write in that report. And I think I'm on pretty solid ground in making that prediction. Jackie writes, Buck, it would appear we have the same Netflix watch lists. Even before you mentioned them on the podcast, we watched Penny Dreadful, Peaky Blinders, and just started season one of The Last Kingdom this past weekend. We recently watched Nightfall, which I think is worth a view. I really enjoy your podcast and your humor. I look forward to more Netflix show recommendations. Thanks for a great show of your own, Jackie. Well, Jackie, you clearly have fantastic taste in radio shows as well as Netflix fare. I will say I I did not really like Nightfall. I tried. Uh, it's about Knights Templar after the period of the Crusades, but I just thought it was it took itself a little too seriously. It was a little kind of overwrought for my taste. But you know, to each his own. Uh, Peaky Blinders, Penny Dreadful, and Last Kingdom are all great. Um, so I'm glad you're liking those. If you have not already watched uh, Ozark, I highly recommend. I highly recommend you put that one into the mix too. And Narcos, obviously. Which is my favorite of all the Netflix originals? Narcos is my favorite, uh, my favorite show. Um, but Jackie, thank you so much for writing in. TJ writes: Tell Jamal way to go to make that rising panel entirely about Donald Trump instead of H. W. Bush this morning. It was quite annoying and disrespectful. He needs to work on containing his hatred for Trump. He's really annoying to watch sometimes. Uh, well, TJ. Uh, I'm gonna li- I'm gonna leave that one to you if you want to pass that along to Jamal. I don't. Uh, I I am first and foremost obligated to be uh, to get along with my my liberal colleagues at the Hill. So that's that is my my mandate for for my time there, and that is what I will uh, always try to do. Um, that all said, as a general matter, as I have been saying this show, I find it very annoying and yes, very tiresome that uh, people 
take every opportunity. Everything is a commentary on Trump. The, a lot of a lot of folks out there are really more obsessed with Trump than Trump is. Uh, they they can't help themselves but turn every conversation into a referendum on all things Trump. And I I just wish, I just wish they would realize how weird it has become now. Uh, you know, George H W Bush passes away. It's a commentary on Trump. Jamal Khashoggi gets murdered. It's a commentary on Trump. Uh, you know, there are forest fires in California. It's a commentary on Trump. I mean, everything. These people really need a bit more perspective. Jar writes, on the whole Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer fiasco, why do people always have to make it some all-encompassing big picture instead of looking at the story in light that is one individual lesson? Rudolph is a heartwarming story about how people are jerks until you need something from them, like when you're moving and your coworker owns a truck. Uh, absolutely jar. And let me say I can add to that the um, very, very important role that the shagging wagon played when I was in college. My wood paneled Buick Roadmaster station wagon in a pale blue. Uh, it was very popular among my uh, dorm mates because it was one of the few cars that could really handle a queen size futon in the back, no problem. I mean to move the futon, not to leave. I know we call it the shagging wagon, but that's because there was no shagging in that wagon. Uh, but the futon in the back, that was for moving purposes, not for any other kind of purpose. Uh, yes, indeed. So, uh, Jar, I agree with you on Rudolph. Steve says, Crazy Uncle calls Die Hard a Christmas movie. In fact, it's more of a Christmas movie than Bells of St. Mary. All of Die Hard's action happens on Christmas Eve, whereas only one brief scene in Bells happens on Christmas. So why is one considered a Christmas movie but not the other? Merry Christmas and don't shoot your eye out. Uh, okay, Steve, thank you. Speaking of shoot your eye out, you know, I was watching uh, Tombstone, which is a movie that I just, I just love. I, I, I've seen it so, so many times. I think it's Val Kilmer's single best role ever in anything. And people always say Jim Morrison, The Doors. But I think that's a lot of nostalgia stuff. And the, the depiction was very accurate, I know. And some people were really impressed by that. But The Doors movie kind of stunk. Uh, the Doors were... I know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to lose some of you right now. Some of you are getting annoyed at me. But The Doors, a little overrated. There's only, there's only so much... Uh, there's only so much uh, organ music you can handle before. It sounds like you're at a ball game. Uh, and as to uh, Die Hard, well, Die Hard is amazing and perfect. Oh, but uh, in in Tombstone, there's a scene where, some of you recall this, you've seen the movie many times, there's a play, and they're doing uh, the St. Crispin speech, and it's actually Billy Zane from Sniper, uh, and also Titanic. Remember Billy Zane? Unhand her, you filth. Look at me when I'm speaking to you, you filth, or whatever. You know, he's talking to Leonardo DiCaprio and Titanic. Yeah, I saw Titanic a lot. Make fun of me. Go ahead. We've all you've seen you've seen Titanic too. Don't don't give me that. Don't try that. I some of you out there right now are oh, oh buck. I never saw oh, everybody saw Titanic. Anyway, Billy Zane in Tombstone, uh the Curly Bill, who's in the audience of a play in the in the town of Tombstone, just pulls out his gun and starts shooting at Billy Zane on stage. And he doesn't really miss a beat. He kind of just like, you know, says, yeah, whatever. I, I don't care where you are. If someone pulls out a six shooter and starts firing rounds over your head, you don't just sort of go, oh, well, that was kind of funny. That's part of the movie's a little weird. If you go back and watch, you'll know exactly. Some of you think I'm, I'm being weird right now. Go back and watch. You'll know exactly what I'm talking about. 
Jenna writes, don't you think these extra Twitter terms of service and banning are because they ultimately hate Trump and how and conservatives and how they use Twitter? Wouldn't they just love to ban the president for crossing an arbitrary line? Well, Jen, I don't think they want to ban the president because Trump has has made Twitter uh, necessary. I mean, Trump has made Twitter more than relevant. You can't be a journalist now and not have access and not be aware of Twitter. You just can't because the president is putting out his thoughts. I mean, you're getting essentially presidential proclamations via Twitter, which is pretty amazing. Kevin writes, I'm glad someone watched The Last Kingdom. It's awesome. You should try Frontier, too. Thank you for what you do. I enjoy your show as well as others in the blaze. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Kevin. Uh, I will try Frontier. I know it's got uh, it's got the guy who plays, um, what's his name, from, uh, gosh, my brain, is, my brain is having a tough time with recall today. Uh, the show Game of Thrones, he plays Dro- Carl, Carl Drogo. Carl Drogo. Uh, that guy is in the show Frontiers. So, yeah, I could I could check it out. Give, I'll, I'll give it a shot. I'll give it a whirl. Steve writes, Buck, love the show. Just diving into Friday's podcast. When is a lie a lie? Love the comparisons depending on which side of the Trump aisle you're standing on. As for the Mueller report, I think it's going to be replete with could have been, may have been, possibly had, and appears to have type qualifiers throughout because they got nothing about the so-called collusion. Well, unless you look at the Hillary camp, but those are the not the droids we're looking for. Side note, have you watched Frontier on Netflix? I love it, and the only complaint is there are only six episodes per season. Shield's way high. Well, Steve, you are on this show the second person to give me a recommendation for Frontier on Netflix. I'm going to have to check it out. Uh, it sounds like this is something I need. I need to see. I, I will I will give it a go. Um, where do we have here? Michael writes, Mr. Sexton, I've been a loyal listener for a while. Your voice is one I lean on when I need clarity. Your pragmatic is refreshing to me, even if your impressions aren't quite rich little. Sorry, Michael. That's okay. I do miss your history lessons. As a founder of a veterans nonprofit, I am coming to you with frustration. You put yourself out as a spokesman of Black Rifle Coffee Company, and we've been attempting to contact them with no success. I'm turning to you to ask you to facilitate a phone call with Black Rifle. I understand you're a busy man working all hours of the day, but I'd appreciate your assistance from Michael, who is a veteran. Michael, uh, I will give you in this uh, message here the email that I think will be the best one for you to use for Black Rifle that will get right through to them, and uh, hopefully they can help you out. I'm sure once they know that you're a veteran, you got something to talk to them about, or you need either help or some kind of partnership or whatever it may be i'm sure they'll hear you out and uh they're they're great guys uh, who run that company uh so uh, i'll make sure that you can at least get in touch with them effectively ethan writes buck just wanted to say i couldn't agree more with your assessment of batman begins easily the best movie of that series dark knight had some excellent scenes but the story just lacked cohesion and flow of the first dark knight rises don't get me started i prefer to prefer, uh, pretend that movie never happened sort of like ter- every terminator movie after t2 shields high Ethan in Pittsburgh. Well, Ethan, you're totally right. Um, so I think I can just leave it at that. You're just totally right. Everything you wrote there is correct. Well done. High five. Team, every day this week from the Freedom Hub, we are going to be rocking out together. Thank you so much for being here. Hopefully my voice will be a little bit better tomorrow. I'll drink some tea. Until next time, you've got your orders. Shields high. It's the end of the year, which means that I know you're thinking about holidays, Christmas, gifts, and all that. But if you're a business owner or you work in the HR department, guess what? You've also got to think about new employees, right? You're going to be doing a fair amount of hiring and filling and staffing and all that stuff coming into the new year. 
You want Global Verification Network to be there for you to run all those background checks. You gotta have background checks done for any employee you're bringing in, no matter how large or small your company, and no matter what the size of the contract for that vetting, Global Verification Network has got you covered. They are the boutique veteran-owned and operated background investigation company out there. You need to check them out. They have risk mitigation experts headquartered in Chicago, but with offices throughout the country. I know the CEO, Mark Buckman, personally, and I can vouch for him. This is the guy you want helping you out on background checks. Call 877-695-1179. Again, that's 877-695-1179. Or go to mygvn.com. That's mygvn.com. 